when wise theologians speak, we should pay attention. For instance, when Yoda speaks in Star Wars, it would behoove you to pay attention. When Yoda, that ever-wise theologian and Jedi master, speaks, you better pay attention. So in the Star Wars movie prequel, Attack of the Clones, Yoda knows darkness lies in the future. He senses that all is not well. And so Yoda corrects a young and confident Obi-Wan Kenobi who is prematurely celebrating a victory. And Yoda tells him, the shroud of the dark side has fallen, begun the clone war has. And that's where the Old Testament book of 1 Kings begins. The shroud of the dark side has fallen. There's a battle for the throne of David, a battle for the kingdom. There's also a beauty pageant, but more on that in a moment. And so we begin 1 Kings, and David is sick. He's dying, and there is massive political unrest. And there's some massive family drama, too. And so a coup rises up, led by one of David's own sons. And so we start 1 Kings... And it's all royal family drama begun the throne war has. Royal family drama galore. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. The throne war has just begun. And so we begin a new preaching series today in the book of 1 Kings, which I've titled Wholehearted with the W in parentheses. And the reason for this title will be evident as we make our way through God's Word in 1 Kings. We'll talk about more about the themes here in a moment. But the primary theme emerging in the book is the devotion or the lack of devotion on the part of people to Yahweh the Lord. Rather than serving the Lord wholeheartedly, we will find the majority of God's people serving the Lord wholeheartedly, that is, they have a whole in their heart when it comes to their devotion and dedication to their Lord. And then that will set us up to look for and long for someone to come who would indeed love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that person, of course, is Jesus. So as we see the nation of Israel make a total mess of their lives... And as you come to grips with your lack of devotion to Jesus, let it unearth a desire in your heart to long for Jesus, the true King. As God's law is, exposes our hearts through this book, and it will, we will come back time and time again to the good news of God's never-ending covenant keeping love for sinners like us. So let's cover some quick background material, and then we'll jump into the text. Let's talk about the author. We don't know who the author is, but we do know that First and Second Kings originally composed one large story, but due to space limitation on these ancient scrolls, the books were divided. And so that's how we got two volumes of Kings. First and Second Kings were written sometime after 560 B.C. when Babylon smashed Judah and Jerusalem, which you can read about at the end of 2 Kings, chapter 24 and 25. So we know these books had to be written after the nation of Israel was led away to captivity and slavery in Babylon. 
Now, get this. The books of 1 and 2 Kings covers about 400 years of Israel's history, but in just a little over 50,000 words. So, 400 years in just 50,000 words. Therefore, the author is being very selective in what he wants us to see within that 400-year span. So, what he does include in these two books is of vital importance. The books are not just teaching us historical facts. Rather, they are teaching us about the historical and history-controlling God and His ways. They are teaching us about the fickleness of God's people and the faithfulness of Yahweh to His covenant, the faithfulness of Yahweh to His promises. People are fickle. Yahweh is faithful. That's the big idea of First and Second Kings. And then that leads us to the purpose of the book. First and Second Kings was written to explain to the people of God why they have ended up in exile as slaves in Babylon. The book was written to let God's people know that their ancestors, beginning with the decline of Solomon, did not serve Yahweh wholeheartedly, and therefore they ended up being deported from the promised land. As Old Testament scholar Robert Chisholm says, the story is mainly a tragic one as Israel violated the demands of their covenant with the Lord and experienced the consequences of disobedience. So 1 Kings was written to a group of people who had totally made a mess of their lives. It was written to give hope to people who just couldn't seem to get their act together. I have a feeling that this book is going to be very relevant to us. Have you made a mess of your life? Have you made some stupid decisions? Sinned really, really bad, and now you're having to deal with the consequences of your sin? Maybe you've blown it as a parent. Maybe you've lived in a destructive pattern and you've left a trail of dead relationships behind you. Maybe you wish you could just roll back the tape and get a do-over. Well, you can't. I'm sorry. Life does not work that way. We don't get do-overs. There are real consequences to our sins. Just ask the original audience of this book. They are reading their copy of 1 Kings while they are slaves in Babylon. But sin never gets the last word. Grace does. That's the hope of the gospel, is that sin never gets the last word in our lives. Grace does. Grace always gets the last word in our lives. And just like the original audience who were slaves in Babylon and just wanted to go back home, we too can have hope because Jesus specializes in redeeming awful situations. That, of course, doesn't mean that it'll happen overnight. I mean, look at the original audience. It didn't happen overnight for them. They spent 70 years in slavery. It doesn't happen overnight. It might 
God might intervene in extraordinary crazy ways, but typically God does not wave a magic wand of grace over our lives and make all the pain and all the sorrow go away. But what he does do is promise us his presence as we go through difficult situations and trying consequences. He gives sufficient grace in the middle of our mess. Like he told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul begged for relief from a situation he was in. And God simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. Martin Laird paraphrases 2 Corinthians 12, 9 so well when he says, your struggles remain, but what you get is me. That's a great paraphrase of that verse. Your struggles remain, but what you get is me. Your struggles will remain, Christian, but you get God. You have his presence as you go through suffering and hardship. You are not alone. Jesus walks with you through the consequences of your sin or the sins of someone else that you're having to deal with. And that's exactly what the original audience needed to hear as they sat in exile in Babylon as slaves longing for their home, wondering how in the world they ended up where they were. And so our big idea today is this. When everything seems wrong, God is still on his throne. When everything in your life seems out of whack, when it feels hopeless, when it seems like you just can't catch a break, Jesus is still on his throne. In the middle of your struggles and in the middle of your pain, in the middle of the consequences of sin, your sin or someone else's sin, In the middle of all the unstable and unpredictable moments in life, in the middle of your family drama, you need to remember that God is still on his throne. throne. And most of us affirm this truth. We do. We believe God's word here at Grace. We affirm his sovereignty. We believe that here. But some of us need to be reminded of it again today. You need to be reminded that though everything seems wrong in your life, Though everything seems out of control, Jesus is still reigning on his throne and he is working behind the scenes of your life to bring good out of the mess that has absolutely preoccupied your heart. And that means you can trust him. Yes, your struggles may remain even after this sermon, but the sovereign God is with you. Emmanuel, right now, today. God gives us his all-powerful presence in the middle of our mess and in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our consequences. And David's family was a mess. David is dealing with some serious consequences in his life. Right away in chapter 1, we are going to see some real family drama and real consequences to sin. But before we get to all of that royal family drama, we have a beauty pageant to attend. So look at verse 1 in 1 Kings chapter 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Now King David was old and advanced in years, 
And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, the reason I just said that we are not alone and that the Lord is on his throne in all of the unstable and unpredictable moments in this life is because I believe the author wants us to see that here in chapter 1. The idea of sitting on the throne and ruling is mentioned nine times in chapter 1. So by mentioning this over and over, the author of 1 Kings wants us to feel the tension of who's in control of the kingdom. Who is really in control? But first, let's look at this strange opening. We have King David who is old and advanced in years. He's on his last leg and he's cold. And they tried covering him with a pile of blankets, but David just could not get warm. I feel your pain, David, because I'm always cold. So picture King David. He's an old man. He's failing physically, and he just can't seem to get warm. He's got a beanie on. He's wearing gloves, a scarf, thermal underwear, space heaters galore in his bedroom, piles of blankets, and he's still shivering in the sheets. And what do you do when the king can't stay warm after you pile blankets upon blankets on top of him? You break out the electric blanket, right? That's what's suggested in verse 2. David's servants begin to search for a young woman who can tend to the ailing king. They want to find someone to help David and lay next to him to keep him warm. They're looking for a human electric blanket. And not just any warm human electric blanket. This electric blanket must be a young, attractive supermodel. So David's servants hold a Miss Israel pageant and Abishag the Shunammite wins. Abishag had the worst name in the competition, but apparently she had the best body. But let's cool our engines as David warms up and not read too much into the story. Abishag's purpose, as verse 2 tells us, was to keep David warm. There's nothing inappropriate happening here. And the author tells us so in verse 4, the king knew her not. So the tension here is not what's happening between the sheets. The tension that we should feel is David, the king of Israel, is dying. He cannot keep warm. This is not a sexually charged passage. It's a life-threatening passage. It's a kingdom-threatening passage. What are we going to do? The king is about to die, and there's no successor ready to step in. What's going to happen to the kingdom? Now, sure, Solomon was already handpicked by the Lord. You can read that in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 6 through 10. Solomon was already handpicked by the Lord to sit on David's throne, but David at this point had not sent out the press release to the Jerusalem Gazette informing them that Solomon was ready to step in at any moment. David hasn't implemented a succession plan yet, and he's on his last leg. People knew that Solomon was supposed to be the next king, but there have been no plans set in place. No training. Nothing. So it just all seems so wrong. And David is dying. And so this unstable, unpredictable moment in the kingdom is here. And the author of 1 Kings wants us to feel that tension. What's going to happen to the kingdom? Will Solomon get to the throne? 
Will Solomon be sworn in? Well, not if his brother Adonijah has anything to say about it. Look at verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So as if the failing health and imminent death of King David was not enough to raise the blood pressure of the nation, now Adonijah, one of David's sons, and not the real heir to the throne, leads a coup to set himself up as king. Just what a dying dad needs. Adonijah had reason to assume that he should be the heir to the throne. He was the fourth and oldest surviving son of David, But Adonijah also knew that in spite of the pecking order, the Lord had already chosen Solomon to sit on the throne. Adonijah knew this. Verse 10 tells us that Adonijah did not invite Solomon to his coronation. Hmm, I wonder why. In fact, three times the author tells us that Solomon was not invited. So Adonijah throws a party and he declares, I will be king. And he gathers the expected uh, royal symbols, chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him, retweeting all of his tweets on Twitter. And then the author gives us a little background info on Adonijah. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking him, why have you done thus and so? And the point is this, David had never disciplined Adonijah. David had never asked him why he acted the way he did in life. David never corrected him, and now his son wants to take the throne away from his father. David is now dealing with the consequences of his failed parenting. Perhaps you can relate. What hope is there when you've blown it as a parent? In short... Just one word will do the trick. Emmanuel. That one word, Emmanuel, might be just enough to get you through what you're going through right now in your family. Well, the story continues with David's family, and Bathsheba is not going to just sit by as someone else takes her son's throne. So look now at verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. 
So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. And Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders." While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. So Nathan the prophet loves the kingdom. And he knows the word of the Lord which was stated in 1 Chronicles 22 that Solomon would reign on the throne after David. Therefore, Nathan takes a risk by concocting this plan to remind David of the promise that he heard from the Lord concerning Solomon. And so Nathan's plan will send Bathsheba in to remind David of his promise to her that Solomon would reign on the throne after David, and then to tell him that Adonijah had declared himself king, and then Nathan would enter and repeat the story. And the plan goes as planned. 
As Bathsheba is relaying the story to David, Nathan has a glass to his ear pressed up against the door, and at just the right moment, he enters the room, and Nathan repeats the same story as Bathsheba. Now, what does all of this, all of these verses that we just read, what does all of this say to us? It says that Nathan and Bathsheba's service, their actions became the means through which the Lord would bring about the end, the preservation of his kingdom. So they did as David commanded. But what is so interesting here is how David is giving all of these orders, and yet the promise to him from the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise was this. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so even though the promise from the Lord was that the Lord would establish his kingdom, David knew there was a human component to it as well. He had to take action. He had to do something. I mean, think about it. Did it occur to you that God could have just struck Adonijah down and put an end to all of this royal family drama? He could have. Yet there are human fingerprints all over these scenes. Human activity working seamlessly with God's sovereignty. Ronald Wallace says, Yet God had made no spectacularly miraculous intervention in human affairs. He had not struck Adonijah down with any sudden illness, nor had he sent a bolt of lightning from heaven to spoil his celebration. At the right time and in the right situation, he had simply inspired minds with thoughts that moved them on and given the exact words that were required to turn events in the right direction. David's son, is leading a coup against him, and it all seems so wrong. But David does not bury his head under all the blankets. David had God's promise that he would always have a son on his throne, but that doesn't mean that David just sits back and does nothing. Clearly, we have a part to play. We have a part to play in the expansion of God's kingdom in this world today. And we see that with Bathsheba and Nathan too. They didn't sit on their hands. They responded to God's promise that Solomon would be king. They trusted and then they acted on a promise. They did their part. And so they went and they got one of those paper crowns from Burger King and they put that on Solomon's head and they drove him through the streets of Jerusalem in the back of a convertible Corvette to let people know Solomon is the king. They did their part. And then news reached Solomon's brother, Adonijah. Look at verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man and bring good news. And Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. 
Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. So, after reading it, it's pretty clear that God shut this Adonijah thing down. And he did it through other people. So as Adonijah is in the middle of his victory party, he gets a text message that says, King David has made Solomon king. Party ruined. Adonijah knows it's over. It's your party, and you can cry if you want to, Adonijah, but it's over. So at this point, he knows what he must do. It's a seed. Adonijah doesn't hold a press conference and give a give-up speech. What he does do is run to the sanctuary. Adonijah grabs hold of the horns of the altar, the corner tips of the sacrificial altar, and he begs for his life. And Solomon tells his brother he will let him live as long as he proves to be a faithful, worthy man. And then Solomon spares his brother's life. So, let's pull back for a minute. What does this whole crazy situation here tell us? What is all of this royal family drama that's filling the tabloids here? What is it telling us? It's telling us that God is faithful to his promises. Everything happening here is God keeping his promise to Adam and Eve that he would send one of their descendants to crush the snake. Everything happening here is God keeping his promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed in him. Everything that happens here is God keeping his promise to David. All the drama here plays into God's plans And God's promises. It reminds us, just like it reminded the original audience who sat as slaves in Babylon, it reminds us and them that when everything seems wrong, God is still on his throne. But why should we care about what happens to David and Solomon? Why should we care which of David's sons gets the throne, the throne as long as it's one of David's sons? Why should we care? As long as it's one of David's sons, who cares? Here's why we should care. Because Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, his reputation is at stake. He made promises. And so the shadow of the Lord's 2 Samuel chapter 7 promise to David hovers here over 1 Kings 1. At the very heart of 1 Kings 1 is 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Yahweh's promise to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
And the end product of this long line of kings will be the just ruler that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. Namely, Jesus, the Messiah, the king we want and the king that we need. So it matters that the kingdom gets established. That God keeps his promise because it's leading us to King Jesus. But who can understand these wild and crazy commitments that God makes to his people when everything seems wrong? The Lord made this promise to David. And the whole structure and the whole flow and the whole hope of human history, world history, rest on this existence of this line of human kings from this backwoods, puny, ancient Near Eastern kingdom. Who can understand these wild and crazy commitments that God makes to his people, especially when things get dark? Or seem hopeless. Ed Welch says, God prefers the impossible. Although he often cares for our needs before we know we have them, his mighty acts are showcased best against the backdrop of insurmountable odds. Some of you right now are smack dab in the middle of some insurmountable odds. Things are dark. Things are hopeless. Things seem wrong. Well, guess what? Jesus prefers the impossible. If he's going to pick, I'll go with the impossible. He's comfortable with the impossible. Jesus does his best work in impossible situations with his reputation on the line. And he brought you here today so that you would be reassured of his power and his presence in the middle of your insurmountable odds. He brought you here today so that you would be reminded of something that you already know and believe, so you will be reminded that when everything seems wrong, God is still on his throne. When everything seems on the surface, when you look at it and what you see with your eyes seems wrong, God is still on his throne. And he brought you here today to to remind you of that. Think about our New City Catechism question that we read earlier in the service. Question 49, where is Christ now? Answer, Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. And what's our fighter verse for this week? It's on the bottom of your sermon notes page. Here's our fighter verse, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I... Am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I mean, you can't make this up that we would be on this catechism question today. How do you explain this? That this would be our fighter verse this week. How do you explain this? We just go in order. That we are going to be singing your grace is enough at the end of our service today. How do you explain this? One word. Providence. Sovereignty. 
I mean, we could have planned it, yes, but we didn't. Do you know who planned it? Jesus, the King. And that means that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell someone here today that you can trust him. The Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now. You can trust him. That as the catechism question stated, Jesus is reigning on his throne right now. That as our fighter verse says, you don't have to fear because he is with you. And that as we're going to sing in a little bit, his grace is enough for what you are going through. Jesus is talking to someone here today. This whole service has been geared toward you personally by God to let you know that he's got this thing. That he is reigning on his throne right now. And that he is with you in the middle of the drama and all the confusion that has invaded your life and has totally preoccupied your heart. And so maybe you haven't been trusting God in the middle of the confusion that has invaded your life and all the drama that has preoccupied your heart. Maybe you haven't been trusting God. Maybe you've been scared. Maybe you've been stressed out. So what? So what? Jesus just geared a whole service around your failures to reassure you today. He still loves you. He's faithful to his promises. He's not scolding you this morning. We don't scold our children for being scared, do we? We don't condemn them when they don't trust us. We move towards them with compassion and understanding in order to reassure them. And that's what God does with us. He remembers that we are only dust. So if you've been stressing out and you're worried sick, hear me. Your Father in heaven is not condemning you this morning for that. He's not fed up with you. Your sins, your struggles, your stresses move him to compassion and mercy. He's calling you once again to trust him. And you can. He's geared this whole service to reassure you this morning. Isn't Jesus wonderful? The God of the universe has just handcrafted a church service just for you to reassure your heart this morning. Ralph Davis says, how do you spell assurance? C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. How do you spell assurance? Covenant. This was true for David. God was keeping covenant. And it's true for us as we celebrate communion today. Right here in the Lord's Supper, we have a gospel picture and a reminder that God keeps covenant with unfaithful, fickle people whose devotion often stinks. Jesus lived a perfect life for you because you couldn't do it. And he died in your place. You deserved it. He died for you. He came back from the dead, which no one else has ever done. He's sitting at the right, at his father's right hand right now reigning. And that means that you can trust him. He loves you and he's working everything that is going on in your life for your good. The bread and the cup are meant to give us this assurance. To reassure us that no matter how many times and in however many ways that we have blown it, God will never turn his back on us. He simply will not ever leave us, no matter how many times we fail. And so he's not condemning you this morning, Christian. You are not alone. You're about to eat and celebrate with the king. And as you eat and as you drink, 
be reassured with each swallow that Jesus loves you and that he's with you. Emmanuel, God with us. That's not just for Advent. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is not just for Christmas. It's for a few weeks after Christmas. It's for today, right now. It's for whatever situation you face and whenever you need that promise. So come to the table today and be reminded of God's never-ending, covenant-keeping love for sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love. Thank you that you don't condemn us. Thank you that you understand that we struggle. We're just overwhelmed by your goodness and your care and your compassion. You don't give up on us. We would walk away. You are faithful. Thank you for your son, your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.